Get your business together. Get yourself into what you do and see it through. Being boss is hard. Blending work and life is messy. Making a dream job of your own isn't easy. But getting paid for it, becoming known for it, and finding purpose in it is so doable if you do the work. Being Boss is a podcast for creative entrepreneurs brought to you by Emily Thompson and Kathleen Shannon. Hi, I'm Emily, and I own Indie Shopography, where I help passionate entrepreneurs establish and grow their business online by helping them build brands that attract and websites that sell. I help my clients launch their business so they can do more of what they love and make money doing it. And I'm Kathleen. I'm the co-owner of Braid Creative, where I specialize in branding and business visioning for creative entrepreneurs who want to blend who they are with what they do, narrow in on their core genius, and shape their content so they can position themselves as experts to attract more dream clients. And Being Boss is a podcast where we're talking shop, giving you a peek behind the scenes of what it takes to build a business, interviewing other working creatives, and figuring it out as we go right there with you. Check out our archives at lovebeingboss.com. Welcome to episode number 45. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. Today, Kathleen and I get to talk to David Heinemeyer Hansen, who was one of the writers of Rework and one of the creators of Basecamp, which is a super popular project management system. Um, Kathleen and I are kind of crushing really hard about all the great things that we get to talk to David about. So stay tuned. All right. One of the things that we talk about all the time here on Being Boss is having good systems so that you can work smarter and not harder. I think that FreshBooks is one of those systems that is imperative for your business. Um, It has a ton of features for capturing expenses and invoicing your clients in ways that don't feel awkward. But one of the other things I want to talk about is FreshBooks allows you to do things like getting payroll in every state. FreshBooks even works with a lot of other software that we actually use, including Zen Payroll and Acuity, who is also another one of our Being Boss sponsors right now. FreshBooks also integrates with Google Apps, Zendesk, MailChimp, PayPal, Stripe, Formstack, Wufu, and more. So it's not something that you have to use alone. It's something that you can use with some of the other systems that you're already using. It's so easy to collaborate with contractors and your staff to work on different projects. Uh, There's just so much functionality integrated into it. It is so awesome. Also, I want to remind you guys that your data is safe, secure, and always backed up to the cloud, which is across multiple data centers. And um, it's not something I worry about often, but whenever it comes to my money, you better believe I'm worried about it. All right, try FreshBooks for free today. Go to freshbooks.com slash being boss and select being boss in the how did you hear about us section. David, Emily and I are so excited to have you on being boss today. We are both obsessed with your book rework, but I'm also really curious and excited about your story um, in working for yourself and then launching Basecamp. So if you don't mind, just give us a little bit of background on your um, creative entrepreneurial journey. Sure. So things sort of started on the path to Basecamp back in 99 when uh, 37 Signals was launched as a company. Back then I was not involved at all 
Jason Freed, my current business partner, and a couple of other people started the company in, in 99 in Chicago. And it was a web design company doing uh, client work for hire. But it was a little more than that, too. It was also a company with a point of view. And that point of view was shared both in the design aesthetic, which was the opposite of what was going on at the time. Very simple, very clear, much more focused on writing than flashy graphics. And I became a fan really quickly. So I started following the company through the weblog Signal versus Noise. And in, I think, about 2001, Jason wrote a post about learning PHP. He was trying to make his own piece of software and was using PHP to do it, and he had a problem. So he just asked the lazy web, and I replied from Copenhagen, Denmark. I'd never spoken to him before. I just sent him an email based off that um, initial post and we started talking back and forth and, and I taught him a couple of things uh, about how to do things in PHP and, and he eventually realized that it would be easier just to hire me than um, to learn how to program. So that's what he did and we started working together first on a project called um, Single File which was a web app that you could use to track your uh, book collection. Um, titles you had, what you had lend out, and so on. Because uh, Jason, in, in the mid-90s, had worked on a, a number of uh, FileMaker Pro apps, actually. That's how he got started in software. And this was a port of that. Anyway, it sort of had a nice little following, but uh, never really took off. So it wasn't like we didn't have to work for a living, too. And, and so we did with client work. Uh, Jason and the gang would do the design work, and I'd do the programming work. And then in 2003... We realized that all this client work was kind of a mess. Like we weren't doing a really good job at keeping clients up to date with what was going on and things that were outstanding and the communication was all over the place and, hey, who have that email and do you have the latest version of the file and all the standard problems that people run into when they're trying to coordinate projects together over email with a bunch of different people. So we thought, hey, we make software. We can solve this. And we started working on a project to do that for ourselves. Um, first, that was just an internal thing meant as an in-house app for us to keep track of all these clients and all this communication and all these projects. But about halfway through, we thought, hey, this is actually pretty decent. Um, we're having a lot better of a time managing projects through this. Maybe other people in the industry would think so too. So we showed it to a couple of colleagues, um, and they thought, absolutely, where do we put in the credit card? So that put us well on the path to creating the first version of Basecamp, which launched in 2004. Um, still, our tiny little crew, uh, four people working on the project all in. And not a full-time thing either. This was absolutely a side project. It started as a, as a fourth client. Were you guys still taking on clients at this point? or? Yep. Okay, absolutely. wow. Through the whole development phase, we were working on client projects as well. So we were treating Basecamp literally as a, as a third or fourth client next to all the other paying clients that we had. And even after we launched it, and it launched to a good success, at least what we thought was a good success, um, three weeks in, we were making about 4000 bucks a month. And we thought, wow, this is amazing. We thought if we could have done that after a year, it would have been good. We're doing that after three weeks. But of course, 4000 bucks a month is not going to pay and feed a company of four, pay for any of the other expenses that are involved. But we thought that was still an amazing success. But it still took a whole year, even a little more than a year, before we were making enough from Basecamp to be able to say, okay, we don't need to do clients 
client work anymore and we can focus 100% on Basecamp. So absolutely launched as a, as a side gig, as a side project. And the reason I really like that is uh, the risk factor. If we had decided in middle of 2003, okay, let's just fire all our clients, let's take all our money and plow it into this unknown base camp thing, and if it fails, then what do we do? Uh, I don't know, we eat ramen noodles for a long time? <laughs> it just didn't seem like a good plan, it didn't seem like a good trade, and it was hopefully unnecessary. And I think that that's one of those things in the entrepreneurial lore today that um, it's just so ingrained that people can't see past it. This notion that you have to risk everything, that you have to give 100% to be able to make something good. Absolutely not. We did not give Basecamp 100%. We gave Basecamp 25%. And that turned out to be sort of a way to hedge our beds until we knew that there was something there, there. And then once you've found that out, once you know that there's a market, once you know that there are customers who are willing to pay for your product, okay, fine, then, then go all in on it. But the fact is the vast majority of projects, like the one we had started a couple of years earlier, single file, they just don't turn out. They don't turn out to be something that can be your full-time, sole thing to do. That doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't mean you can't run them. It just means that it's probably not prudent to pour in all your chips on one marker and then spin the roulette and hope it comes up. It, um, and, and what I really don't like about it is the whole lore about how that is, is so brave. So <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? Like you're not a real entrepreneur unless you're one step away from being on the street. I think it's just such an unnecessary and exclusionary myth that there's a lot of people who think, oh, well, I can't do that. Like I'm not going to risk everything and end up possibly on the street. Like I have a family or like I have a lifestyle or I have all these other things going on that I'm not willing to risk just to start a new business. So they get deterred from doing so just because they believe in that myth. So that's one of the things I just want to, it's one of my big pet peeves is just pushing back at that wherever it is. Um, this notion that you have to pour it all in and you have to take maximum risk. And by telling our story and sharing the fact that we did none of those things and it turned out great, not only great, it turned out better than great, it turned out awesome. And we're very happy with that progression just because we had a tiny bit of patience, right? I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs today who are looking at things and they just don't have any patience. They're just like, oh, I want to have the fancy office. I want to have the big crew. I want to have, like, the most comfy chairs. I want to have everything right now, which means that either I have to pour in all my money or I have to take money from someone else or I have to do any of these things. Growing things from a, a seed, planning that, and being just a little bit of patience, uh, it opens up a whole lot of other doors down the road and it gives you far more options. So big fan of that. Oh, I love that. When we talk, uh, I've talked a couple of times recently about how like my, my favorite show is Shark Tank. I watch it all the time and I always learn the most from the people who go into Shark Tank who have great products and services and great businesses and great business models, but they don't get the venture capital funding. Like it's the people who have to leave with, you simply have to be patient and continue like on your path. Um, that I find the most inspiring, like, and, and, you know, with that whole like line of thought altogether, we all tend to think that entrepreneurship is this like all in or nothing, big, scary, go bigger, go home sort of thing. And I find myself caught up in that all the time, but you can learn so much from just doing what you can, being patient, 
taking your time and seeing what happens because there are a lot of kinks to work out along the way. And there are a lot of false starts often. And I think that, that if you pour it all in, you get one shot. Most people don't need one shot. They need two or three or four <laughs> yeah. or five, right? They need a lot of shots to figure out that um, this is how they hit the target. So if you pour it all in and you only give yourself one shot, you just take on poor odds. And that's the part I really don't like. I mean, there's a, this whole mythology around pouring it all in is about taking those long shots. And we celebrate those long shots. I hate long shots. I never take long shots. Something that has like a one in a hundred chance of success, absolutely not for me. I want something with a 20, 30, 40, 50 or greater chance of success. Otherwise, why am I wasting my time? I mean, I'm a, I don't believe in, in luck shining favorably on me. I think I'm going to have exactly the same chances of hitting my odds as anyone else in the universe, right? Yeah. So, to put myself in a position where I just have a poor chance and then believe, oh, I'm just going to be luckier than everyone else, it just, it just, it, that's not like stats. Like statistics is a good grounding course and life force, I think, to uh, guide yourself by. And just don't believe that you're this unique, beautiful snowflake that can beat odds that nobody else is beating. Um, I just, I don't... Align yourself with better odds. It's a much better way, much higher chance of success. I completely agree. And one of the, one of the myths, well, there are a couple of myths that I don't buy into. So whenever you're talking about um, kind of the starving artist that you have to be one step away from being on the street to be successful, I don't believe in that. I also don't... Um, believe in long shots, which is probably why your book Rework is my business Bible. It is chock full of stuff that I could not agree with more. And so I'm going to uh, take a second and read one of my favorite chapters in it that relates to what you're saying right now. And it's this, so every chapter has an illustration paired with it. And this one says, make tiny decisions. And then kind of off to the side, big is grayed out a little bit. So what it's saying is make tiny decisions instead of big decisions. And I'm just going to read an excerpt from the book. Big decisions are hard to make and hard to change. And once you make one, the tendency is to continue believing you made the right decision even if you didn't. You stop being objective. It goes on to say a little bit more, but another one of my favorite parts of this chapter is making tiny decisions doesn't mean you can't make big plans or think big ideas. It just means you believe the best way to achieve those big things is one tiny decision at a time. And I love that because there is this aspect of course correction along the way. So if you guys had started Basecamp and it wasn't the booming success that it is even starting off a booming success for you guys at $4,000 a month of revenue, um, you would be able to make these tiny decisions and adjust along the way, which I'm sure you did in the different iterations of Basecamp. So I'm curious, um, well, I'm curious about a couple of things. Once you just started working on Basecamp, uh, then you started releasing other projects. So were those kind of side projects, did they become kind of the part-time gig to base camp. Tell me about the progression of your company to where it is now. Sure. I think it's absolutely right. This is the whole thing we're talking about is these small low-risk decisions, ways to test out theories and figure out which ones that work. And then not until you've proven that something works are you going to pour in everything you have to it or at least more of it, right? So with Basecamp, 
when that was taking off enough to fund our operations, we were thinking, hey, that'd be prudent to continue that. Like Basecamp may very well not live forever. Most companies don't live forever, certainly not software companies and certainly not software products. So we were thinking that some diversification would be a good idea. At least that was the theory of the time, and, and we could talk about how that sort of evolved over time, and especially the last couple of years when we then chose to actually go the other route. But in the beginning, we were thinking, yep, this Basecamp thing, it's going well right now, but it might stop. So we started uh, thinking about other software products that would fit into the same sort of mold, that would appeal to the same audience. Because I do think that that is a lot of what we're trying to do in business is to build an audience, people who are willing to listen to what we have to say and then hopefully by extension also willing to buy what we have to offer. So that is for, for all the time that we've been in business, that's been our marketing and sales strategy is to build that audience. So building an audience is, is really hard work. So if you can avoid building this sort of a lot of different off, uh, audiences, you're much better off, right? So we were building this one audience, mainly in the creative services industry. Uh, it, it's, it's since expanded from there, but that was sort of our route. So we were looking at other products within that. And we started working on, on a chat tool called Campfire, um, sort of like 10 years before Slack became all the rage. Campfire was much of the same stuff. Um, High Rise, which was uh, and is a CRM management tool, we've we've since spun that out into an independent company, and then Backpack, which is sort of a, a personal manager, kind of like a an Evernote of sorts for um, sort of keeping track of all the loose ends in your life, and all of these individual projects were something that we were just sort of. We're starting because we kind of needed it ourselves. We had a need with High Rise when we started getting a lot of inbound calls from, uh, from journalists and from um, people who wanted to invest in the company or all these other people that we were trying to keep track of. And I think it, the strategy at the time, I, I still look back favorably upon. Uh, when something is just a small seed, as Basecamp was at the time, it's still very fragile. Lots of things do not break out of sort of escape velocity, right? Like they grow to sort of some moderate size and then maybe they just stay there, they, they fall down. So we were thinking that the odds of that happening to Basecamp were pretty good because it's happened to the majority of all software ever launched in the world. Um, so exactly for heating those odds, um, we were trying to diversify in the beginning. And some of those things took off better than others. Um, High Rise turned into a phenomenal business. Um, and one we really didn't do enough justice until recently where we, we spun it out as a separate company. Um, but they all helped us solidify a base where we felt like if any one of these things would hit a wall and not really grow, the company wouldn't be in danger. So that sort of strategy, I think, for us worked very well until we got to a point where these individual products were getting quite big and quite big in terms of the number of customers they were having and the amount of investment we had to put in to upgrade them and maintain them and so forth. And then it was running into this other thing we were also trying to do, which was to stay small. Right. So about two years ago, we sat down for a big sort of grand meeting, um, Jason and I and a couple of other people at the company and thought, like, what are we going to do? Like n we currently have a product portfolio of about four products. We have, I think at the time, 35 people. 
it's not nearly enough. We can't do any of it justice. We're doing all of it sort of a little bit poorly. Well, once we started looking at the numbers, uh, it was pretty clear right away that there was one thing that was doing far better than all the other things. And that thing just happened to be the original thing. Basecamp had absolutely achieved escape velocity. It was this massive growing business and we were kind of neglecting it because we kept with that diversification strategy that served us well in the beginning, but didn't serve us well seven years into it. Basecamp had proven that this was a long-term solid idea. Doesn't mean it's going to be around forever. It just means that uh, this was the golden egg, right? And when you find out that you do have this golden egg, like you better sit on that thing. Like, right. Keep running around the, the hen house and, and trying to find all these other golden eggs because that's sort of, that's the goal, right? Like in the early years, in the first one, two, three, four years of Basecamp's lives, it wasn't a golden egg. Like it wasn't this massive thing that's been used by 15 million people that it is today, right? Like it was a much smaller thing and the chances of it not turning into a golden egg were good. Um, so I think that that's also sort of one of the things you just learn as you're, you're in business that strategies that make sense in the early years, sometimes it's the opposite strategy that makes sense in the later years, which is another pet peeve of mine that um, a lot of new entrepreneurs have a tendency to listen too much to people who've already found their golden egg. And they listen to the strategies that make sense for guarding that golden egg when they don't have a golden egg. And the strategies for getting a golden egg and for keeping a golden egg, they're often in direct opposition. They're often the exact opposite things you need to do. And I think that that was um, just when we, we hit that, right? Like I kind of, I'd been railing around that for a long time, but it wasn't really until we, we hit that wall smack on and, and realized that, oh, we were really mistreating Basecamp. We were not doing it justice. This was this massive thing that was keeping on growing, and we just had a skeleton crew on it because we were chasing all these other diversification ideas. That's fascinating. I'm curious, too, about your creative process then behind writing Rework. Tell me a little bit about that and what that was like. Sure. So as I was saying, the number one strategy we've always had for creating attention around the company and our products has been to share what we know. Uh, Kathy Sierra has this great saying, if you can either out-teach or you can outspend," And we weren't going to outspend anyone. Um, as a small, bootstrapped, independent company, there's no way we were going to buy a big advertisement campaign or hire hundreds of people or do any of the other things that um, companies with VC backing or, or deep pockets otherwise do, right? So our secret weapon was simply we were going to out-teach everyone else. We were going to share more. We were going to share all the ideas we had about running the business. We were going to share all the software we were developing. That's how Ruby and Rails came to be. We were going to share all our design techniques. We were going to share our failures. We were going to share our wins. We were going to share it all. So we've been doing that on the Signal versus Noise blog since the inception and, and even prior to of Basecamp, which means that uh, by the time we started sort of thinking about rework, we had a back catalog of about 10 years. 10 years of thoughts, opinions, uh, lessons that we could share. So the creative process for Rework was really one of curation, to look through our back catalog of great ideas, to take 10 years of 
hundreds, if not thousands of blog posts and conferences and workshops and all the other material that we had put out there and distill it into the greatest hits, basically. Which is funny because that's also one of the, the early critiques of the book. Uh, one of the top voted reviews on Amazon.com is this sort of scon basically just saying, hey, this is just a rehash of Signal versus Noise. If you've read every single blog post over the last 10 years, <laughs> there's nothing new here. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you're about the only person who did that. You and us, right? There's right. not a whole lot of people who've read everything that you ever had to say. Um, and that's what was uh, our purpose with WeWork, that there's just tons of people that we hadn't reached. And even if we reached someone today, they didn't know about all the stuff we've been saying for years. So Rework became this journey to find all those great ideas, put them into one digestible package, and basically condense 10 years of thinking into three hours of reading, if that. I mean, somebody can probably read in two and a half hours, right? I recommend reading it every year. Like coming back and reading it every year and because what you'll get from it is different in the different stages of your business. Every time I read it, I feel like I, I'm and one of the chapters resonates with me more than it ever had before. Um, and I know that Emily gives away a copy to basically everyone that comes into her house. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I was actually looking for my, like my copy and I can't find it, but I found two others. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit then about um, content marketing because you guys did have the blog. Was that you and Jason mostly writing on the blog or how did you kind of justify keeping up with that? One of our philosophies for my company, Braid Creative, but then also Emily's company, Indie Shopography, is really just to give it all away. And that's really what this podcast is about too. We're really trying to share as much as we can. Um, so I'm curious how you guys maintained that as something that was important to you? I think it started out being that we simply can't shut up. <laughs> so That'll do it. I, th that helps to get things started, at least. Um, and I think what we just realized that, hey, we weren't doing anything else. Like We weren't spending anything on marketing. We weren't spending anything... Uh, we weren't really even doing anything else. We weren't even doing great on sales optimization. We had this one thing. We had this one thing that we couldn't shut up about the things we were learning and the opinions we had about industry practices and so on. So when you do have one thing that you kind of you almost can't help but not do and it's the only thing you're doing that helps the business, um, I think we came to a realization that it was just important. And after you come to that realization, that helps you sort of go through and push through some of the faces where you don't really want to write. I've certainly had plenty of faces. I've had long sabbaticals from the blog where I just wouldn't write anything for months on end. And it's that sense that, hey, this is actually important. Like, I'm not just using this as an outlet for me not being able to shut up, although it's an important outlet for that. It's also important for the business, and I should get back into it. I actually, we've done that recently. There usually is a somewhat of a spike whenever we're getting ready to launch a new thing, and we're just about getting ready to launch a brand new version of Basecamp, Basecamp 3, that we start getting into this mode again that, hey, we should, we should start talking about this stuff. We've learned so much building this new version. It's important that we share it for our own sanity, for our own understanding of what we're doing and getting better at our craft and, and everything, and because it's good marketing. So 
I think it's just, it's really important. Whenever anyone asks me, um, I often get emails about like, hey, I'm, I have a new idea for business. How should I get it off the ground? Can I just build it? And then they're all just going to come if it's good. And it's not that I love bursting bubbles, but I, I kind of do. <laughs> I tell people that, no, they're not going to come. They're just not going to come. Like you can build a great piece of software, but the odds, again, it comes back to that thing about long odds or, or not so long odds, are that if you just build a great piece of software and you don't tell anyone about it, well, nobody's going to know about it. Surprise, surprise. And it's not going to be a success. The odds of you being basically picked up by the American idol of the business world and catapulted into the limelight just because you are so good, they're just vanishingly small. So you have to do the work yourself. And if you're going to do the work yourself, then you better get started now because it's going to take a long time. And we often get this criticism, yeah, well, that's easy for you to say. Like, you have a big audience now, and you have 140,000 followers on Twitter. You have so and so many followers of your blog. And it's like, yeah, how do you think I got that? Do you think I, somebody just came along and handed that to me? <laughs> do you think that there's just, like, some vending machine? You're like, oh, yeah, give me an audience. <laughs> hanging on to your every word and curious about what you have to say. No, you get one listener, one reader at the time. When we launched the original version of Basecamp, we had about 4,000 readers on Signal versus Noise. After running the blog for three years, 4,000 readers in today's environment? I mean, there are dogs on Instagram that have more followers <laughs> than that. Um, it just wasn't, it wasn't a big start. And it wasn't enough to create the company that we have today, but it was enough to start, right? So that's what I keep telling people is that if you want to build an audience, and I think that that is the one path that is available to everyone, regardless of the funding that they have behind them, to some extent even regardless of the time or the resources they otherwise have. Um, that's the one path that, the, that anyone can choose to, to follow. doesn't mean that they're going to be a success. There's no guarantee of outcome here. But it's something that they can choose to do, but they have to do it. And I think that's just where 80 or 90% just drop off. Like They just kind of, yeah, okay, don't really want to do the work. Or they feel like they don't have anything to say. I, I think in the vast majority of cases, that's wrong. I think everyone has something to say. I think all domains are interesting if you spend enough time peeling the onion and unpacking everything. Um, one of the examples of, uh, of this, I remember uh, first time I heard of, um, I think it was Plenty of Fish that did all those um, blog posts about the statistics of dating or something. Um, and I just thought, like, wow, what a great way to attract attention to your platform. Like, what a great way to sort of talk about this in such a way. Like, I had not heard of the site before. And I stumbled across these posts. And I was like, wow, this is exactly it. So that was kind of what we were trying to do. And I think that's available to anyone in any domain. Because if you're trying to sell something to someone, that's because they care about that thing, right? Like, for right. Basecamp, it's often... A lot of the buyers that we have at Basecamp, they run their own small business or they're freelancers or something. So they care about kind of the same things that we care about, right? So if we talk about that, we have something in common. We're sharing something. They're hopefully learning something. And hopefully they, they sign up for the product and they, they tell a friend. And plenty of them won't, but enough of them hopefully will. That It turns out that they, there's a, at least an audience that's receptive to hear what you have to say. doesn't mean they're going to buy your stuff. At all. We've launched things that the audience ended up not really buying. Um, Campfire, that original uh, chat product, was just, I think the 
self-serving way to say that is it was ahead of its time. Like it didn't even <laughs> catch on at the time.、Um, even though we had a good audience that we thought was a good fit for this,、um, the timing and the packaging and the messaging, or all of the above, was wrong. And even though we had a big audience, it it didn't really take off in in anywhere near close to the same ways as as Space Camp did, or or later products in the same category did. So, again, nothing of this is about building guarantees. It's all just about improving your odds. Hello, Emily here to talk about running an efficient online biz. Doing business online is all about solutions. Solutions for billing, time tracking, project management, scheduling, and each solution is only as good as the integrations that make your whole business work in harmony. When our new pals at Acuity Scheduling wanted us to share their awesomeness with all of you bosses, one of our first points was, "How do you integrate?" And they surely did not disappoint. Whether you're a FreshBooks user, are married to Google, send emails with Mailchimp, Aweber, Constant Contact, or Mad Mimi, or if you use Zapier to make all the things work the way you want them to, Acuity Scheduling makes sure your meetings are in line with how you do business online by integrating with all of these and more. Schedule clients without sacrificing your soul. Sign up for your free trial of scheduling sanity at acuityscheduling.com/beingboss. Now let's get back at it. So I have a question. One of the things that you started talking about is you have to do the work, and that's definitely a theme of our podcast. So I'm really curious. You started off as a programmer who is literally responding to a blog post about PHP. So I'm curious, as you've grown the business, how you continue to do programming, or if that's a part of your role still, and how you balance kind of being boss with doing the work, programming, writing, coming on podcasts, all of it. Tell us a little bit, maybe, about your routines and boundaries and habits to kind of do it all. Sure. For me, and maybe I'm—I don't think so. Even though I was going to say maybe I'm unique in that fashion, but I don't think so. I think most people who do start out、um, with a passion for the craft that they're practicing retain that passion. I certainly did, and I took great lengths to keep cultivating it. Um, so, for example, this new version of, of Basecamp three, I've written a, a lion's share of the code for it. I simply love programming. I love working with Ruby. I love working with Rails, and I love creating new features and honing things and rewriting things. So, it's kind of been almost.、Uh, I've been pushing off everything else、uh, to some extent at some times when that was needed. Right, like.、Uh, Programming was was one of those sort of true loves of the work. For other people, it's a means to an end. That's how it started out for me, actually. When I first learned programming, it certainly wasn't because I loved code. It was just because I wanted stuff. I wanted a website, and to get a website online, the easiest way to do that was to learn how to program. It wasn't until years into the whole endeavor,、uh, until really finding Ruby. That I truly just fell in love with programming as a craft, and found that something that I just wanted to work on until until the end of time, <laughs> until as long as I could、uh, I could still do it. So I dedicate a large percentage, probably the largest slice of all the work that I do is still programming work, which I don't need to do it. 
Um, to some extent, I mean, we have, what do we have, 12, 13 programmers now at Basecamp. So I could step away from that and do other things, but I also a little bit have that uh, uh, reminder in my head that it, usually you say it about other people, like they got promoted into incompetence. I think you <laughs> yeah. can promote yourself into incompetence as a um, business owner very easily push yourself into various directions that maybe you could do the job. And I've certainly done many of the jobs that just need to be done over the years at Basecamp. But is that really one you want to spend your time on? I like to think of, of Basecamp as a lifestyle business. And usually people use that term as a derogatory term to say, oh, that's just a nice, pretty little thing that can pay for your personal salary and that's the end of it. That's not how I see it. I see a lifestyle business as a, as a business that allows me to live the lifestyle that I want. And a big part of that is that I want a lifestyle that includes programming. So I'm going to do that. And we're going to find people and we're going to build out Basecamp to such a way that the other aspects of the business that I had been doing myself from the beginning, I mean, we started out with four people. I was the sole technical person. I did everything. I set up... Um, the servers, I was dealing with the hosts, I was dealing with outages, I was dealing with domain registration, I was dealing with the statistics of the business, I was doing all the financial um, analysis, I was computing all that stuff. Uh, so it, it's funny because in some ways you think like in the early days, like you have more time to just do programming and as the company get larger, you have less time. To some extent for me, it's been the opposite. Um, in the early days, since I had to work almost all the hats, um, sharing some with Jason naturally, but I was wearing a ton of hats and these days I can afford to wear less hats because we can hire some people who can take on some of those hats that I've been wearing uh, and in the past. So that doesn't mean that I just, the only thing you can do is, is, is programming. There's still plenty of stuff just around running a business. Uh, we've only just hired a, a COO and I hope that uh, Mercedes, um, who's coming on actually in just a few weeks, at the company, it can take over some of these things. But up until this point, I've also been the main person who dealt with accountants, dealt with tax issues, wow. dealt with legal issues, dealt with all these other aspects of the business that I occasionally find interesting, um, which is which is a funny thing to say about taxes or legal. <laughs> but there are actually aspects of it that are interesting, but it's just not as interesting as programming. And I'm certainly not as good at it as I am a programmer, right? So I'm trying to shrink my sphere of responsibilities into a smaller core of things that I just care more about. Uh, and the two things I care about the very most is A, programming, and B, out teaching people. Teaching everything that I've learned, building the business, continuing to build the business, all the considerations we have on the direction and the vision of the business. So that's why I love coming on podcasts like this and just talking about all this stuff. Why we love writing the books of rework and going to conferences and, and writing blog posts. It's, um, it's just enjoyable. I, I really find it just fun. Part of it is because I find talking about ideas fun and debating ideas and <laughs> writing about ideas. Um, and the other part of it is, to some extent, I think both Jason and I are good at it. And I think there aren't that many people who are comfortable doing that kind of work. There's a lot of other work in the business that we could delegate out we can't delegate the face of the business. We can't delegate the what we stand for. We can't outsource that. You can't outsource your values. You can't outsource your practices and, and principles in that sense. So 
that feels like it's core work to what and who Basecamp is, and Jason and I should be doing that work. All right, I have a question. Um, it's been a few years since you've written Rework. Are there any chapters or lessons learned since then that you would include in the book? Or is there anything now that you read in the book that you're like, uh, I would probably take that out? Good question. I think one of the things that Reworked focused on mostly was the first shot. It didn't focus so much on what happens if that shot works, right? Like Rework was a lot about giving your plan and uh, some guidance to finding that golden egg, as we were talking about earlier. If you show, should be so lucky to find a golden egg, well, what the hell do you do then? I think that's what we've been trying to figure out for the past, not just couple of years, but longer than that. And I think that there's, there's a bit of a, a gap there in rework, and it doesn't really teach you anything about that. So I think we have a fair amount of stuff to say on that topic. Some of the things are happy things, um, and as we were talking about, oh, if you do find that golden egg, maybe there are ways that you can shrink your sphere of uh, responsibilities into just that core that you're really good at and is uniquely uh, valuable to the company that you do. But there's also things that are not as pleasant. Um, one of the things, for example, is how do you say goodbye to employees? Like we talked a lot about hiring in the book. How do you find the best people? Well, what do you do when those people leave? We didn't really talk about that because, well, A, at the time, we just hadn't had that many people leave. Um, we didn't have a back catalog of examples to draw upon. Now that we're a slightly bigger company, we're almost 50 people now, and we've been around for longer. Uh, it's been almost, what, 15 or 16 years now. We just have a bit more experience with that because we've had more cases of it. So I would address some of those aspects of, of keeping the ship running, both keeping your motivation up and high and dealing with just, those natural blips and downs that are from, from running a successful thing for a long period of time. In terms of taking things out, it's funny. Um, when Rework first launched, we put out a bunch of tweets and we were sort of trying to gauge which tweets would get the most attention, right? So which would be the best hooks for the book. And one of the hooks was uh, a line that uh, Matt Linderman wrote, who's... Um, a guy that one of the original uh, employees of 37 Signals, actually the very first employee that Jason ever hired that worked for 37 Signals for, I think, about just about 10 years. Um, and a lot of the work that he did, actually, was on helping us curate that book. And he also wrote uh, some original stuff for it. And one of the, the lines for that was um, um, like how something about seeing the waves and where they break and adjusting accordingly. And it's just, I love Matt, and I, I love his writing, and Rework is so much better for him being involved, but that was always one of those lines that I just ended up hating. <laughs> and it's so funny that um, it was a very popular line, and their office worked very well, and for a lot of people, it spoke to them. I was just never sure what it said. So if it was speaking to people, I, I could never quite discern what it was saying and whether it was saying anything at all. Um, so that, was, that has been one of sort of the pet uh, things. I'm sure I can find th other things in the book that I wrote myself that I would yank out now on a, on a sure. second reading. But that one had just sort of been irking me for a long time, exactly because it, it got to be so popular. It was definitely it was one of the top five or top three tweeted things that we got out. So it was one of those hooks that a lot of people had, had underlined. And I always went like, but what does it mean? What does it mean to watch the wave and adjust accordingly? Like, what's the opposite of that? 
You need like, to do more surfing, David. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe that's uh, that's where I fell short on it. All right, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about um, finding that golden egg and kind of starting versus sustaining success. And so I think a lot of our audience listens to Being Boss is really wanting to find that golden egg and and maybe leave their day job to commit to their side hustle. But Emily and I are both in a place in our businesses where we're kind of more on the sustaining success side. And one of the things that you said earlier is sometimes the startup phase is the opposite of what you should be doing to sustain success. So I'm just curious what some of your thoughts are on that. Um, if you can add any more to that, like what would some of the chapters of the sustaining success book be? Sure. Um, I think a lot of it about sustained success, if you're trying to sustain success with the same group of people who got you there in the first place, um, a real challenge is how you keep motivation up. Once you've been doing something for 5, 10, 15 years, how do you stay interested? How do you stay challenged? How do you stay motivated to keep pushing at it? And it's hard. I think that's one of the reasons why we went overdue on becoming Basecamp, that we kept starting new projects and products and offshoots, was because we just had that urge. Um, a lot of people who end up starting something successful, they started it in the first place because they had that urge to start something. Well, what I'm finding is that for most people, that urge does not go away. Um, and it doesn't even matter how successful the thing you have is, if the urge is still there and is not being satisfied by the current business, it's going to go elsewhere. It's going to go into all these offshoots and, and different directions, many of them that can actually be harmful to the business, which is sort of the paradox, that you're taking the eyes off the ball. It feels like an addiction. Like this happened yes. to me recently where I felt like I just wanted to launch more things and become a portfolio entrepreneur. And I had the same thing where my braid method has been the bread and butter of my business. It's what makes me the most money, but I was neglecting it because I wanted to just make something new and launch something new. And I think that Emily has that same urge. I feel like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, um, so keeping motivation around, you know, it's kind of like being married for a while and then you start to get a wondering eye a little bit. Like how seven year you, itch. You get that seven year itch. So how have you guys kept your motivation up for Basecamp? How do you kind of re-fall in love enough to launch Basecamp two and Basecamp three? I think exactly by actually doing that. It's almost in the question. That for the first seven years, funnily enough, of Basecamp, we were working on that original code base, that original design, and we were tweaking it and polishing it and making it better. But it had, it had sort of reached the end of its road. It had reached the end of the usefulness of us keeping to tweak and tinker with essentially the same plan, essentially the same direction. And what we realized then was... In the past seven years, we had learned a lot. We had changed our minds on certain things, and we had gained a deeper understanding of what we were actually building. And all of that pent-up knowledge didn't have anywhere to go because we couldn't change Basecamp that radically. When you have a successful product like Basecamp, there's a lot of people who want that to stay the way it is. Because that's what they've learned, that's what they're used to, that's what works for them. So if you start rearranging the furniture all of a sudden, they're going to go like, hey, 
what's going on here? I'm paying for this product. Please don't <laughs> move the couch over there. Like, I liked it just where it was. Just leave it be. Well, that's the right thing for them, right? Like, Basecamp is not the most important thing in the world for the majority of our customers, right? It's the most important thing in the world for our work life. But you can't just project that on your customers and think they're going to love every radical change that you make. Yet, that's what you want to do. That's what the urge is. You want to make a radical change. After seven years, you're done tinkering. We were done tinkering. And that's why we weren't paying enough attention to Basecamp. So at year seven or thereabouts, we decided, actually, we are going to be radical. Actually, we're going to rewrite the whole damn thing from scratch. And we're going to start over from almost a clean slate, almost a fresh page, and we're going to fill it in again with all we know now and not be encumbered by all the stuff that we have. So that's going to be a brand new version, and it became Basecamp 2, uh, a version of the product that we want run concurrently with the original version of Basecamp. We have still tons of customers on the original version of Basecamp, happy customers who just want to keep paying for what they have. But of course, A, that doesn't provide you an outlet for your creative urge to create something new, as I said, but B, it's also not necessarily attractive to new customers, right? Like for the customer who signed up seven or six or five years ago, they're happy with what they have, at least a large proportion of them. They're happy to keep paying for it. But a customer that comes to you today, they're not happy with your ideas of five or six years ago. They want your best ideas of now because those are the ideas that you have to compete with other people with. There was always new stuff launching. And whenever somebody's launching something new, they're launching with their best ideas as of right now. I don't feel good about competing against those ideas with the best ideas I had seven years ago. So you're going to be in a bad position if you do that, which was, I think, why it's, it's a symbiotic relationship in, in that sense that both that urge to create something new means that you have something new, presumably, right? Like you have more ideas. They're not finding an outlet. So if you put them into, into a package, that's going to be more appealing to new users. The trick and the hard part, in my opinion, is how do you deal with that existing golden egg? Right. So base camp one. Yes. Okay, so here's my question then. It's essentially like now you have, and you're about to launch Basecamp 3. Did you do the same thing with Basecamp 3? Did you start over from scratch again? Or Yes. Okay, yes. so now you have Basecamp 1, 2, and 3, and you're going to be running all of those, right? So it's not yes. just creating new products, but maintaining the old ones. Yep, and yeah. that's not easy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lot but of work. It, it sounds worse than it is. I think actually one of the reasons we got so encouraged and why we are building Basecamp 3 now is because things went better than we thought they would with the first version. We thought it would be far more effort to maintain Basecamp Classic than it turned out to be. Well, what happens, at least when you're running sort of online web businesses as we were, was that if you keep the same feature set and you keep the same customers and you do sort of you don't let anyone new in the door, the amount of work involved with operating that is, at least for us, was surprisingly low. Uh, the amount of uh, company resources we've had to dedicate to the classic version of Basecamp have not been very high. We've still had to do work to ensure that it stays fast and it's secure and it's upgraded and all those things, but it's been very manageable. And we've been able to invest the vast majority of the company resources in the new thing while still keeping the existing customers happy. So I think it's, it's partly because we're high off that success that we thought, hey, if it worked the last time, 
maybe it'll work again. Maybe we'll be disabused of it this time and maybe three versions will be the breaking point. But I don't, I don't think so. It, it could be, but uh, I think we're quite content with the strategy we found, which is a lot about just ensuring that you're not risking the golden egg, right? There's um, plenty of instances in history where software products or services have just thrown out the existing model that actually worked right, and thrown out all the customers with them and say, oh, we're going to do this brand new version. Everyone is going to love it, including all the old customers. And we're quickly disabused of that idea and surprised when not everyone loved the new version of the software. And we just thought we're not going to fall into that trap. It sounds like what you're doing is um, kind of just making the golden egg a little bit bigger, or maybe um, you're creating layers around that golden egg by launching these updated or almost completely new versions of Basecamp. I, we have just a couple more minutes with you. I, I wanted to ask you about your value around staying small. So your company now has 50 people, which is probably um, quite a bit smaller than it could be, even though it's, I'm sure to some people it might sound huge. Um, but tell me a little bit about your values around that. Again, because a lot of our listeners and even our own companies are very small. Um, sometimes I kind of question, and this is a question that my sister, who's my um, co-owner of my business, we're always asking ourselves, are we building an agency or are we building a brand? And I think we're kind of doing both at the same time, but we also value staying small. But sometimes I wonder, am I shooting myself in the foot by not just building an agency? So I would love to hear your thoughts on staying small. My preference um, shall not be hidden. I love small. And we fought very hard over the years to optimize Basecamp in such a way that we could stay as small as we possibly can. I have absolutely no illusion that if we had not done this, Basecamp would easily have been hundreds of people today. I don't like companies of hundreds of people. I don't like companies of thousands of people. And I mean that in the sense of like, I don't like the lifestyle business as we were talking about. I don't want that to be my lifestyle. I don't want to work at a company of 300 people. I like knowing uh, the majority of the people, and even at 50, that's hard, um, of all the people at your company at a, at a personal level and, and interacting with uh, the majority of them. So, and, and the flip side too is a lot of the people I've talked to who've gone through the transition of having had a small company and now they have a big company, all the most cherished stories that I hear from them, they're all about the early days. They're all about, remember when we were just like 15 people and we were sitting in like this shandy <laughs> office somewhere and like we did this and we did that. All those formation stories are the most cherished stories that they have. And I often look at that and I think, wow, you're more successful. I think you have more people, you have a bigger company, but you're also less successful. You have less of the things, you have less of the lifestyle, you have less of the work format that you actually truly enjoyed. And I think... It ties back into the other conversation we had about that urge to create something. It's just hard to turn a big ship. It's very hard to turn a big ship. And the more people that you have, the bigger your company is, uh, the more resilient it is to change. So by keeping Basecamp as small as possible, I believe we have more of an incentive just from the systemic setup of the whole organization that we can, we can do things like, say, we're going to rewrite the whole damn thing. We're going to rewrite Basecamp and put out a, a brand new version, and that's going to be that. Um, the bigger you become, the more departments that you have, the 
taller your chain of reporting and silos and blah, 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 the harder all that stuff becomes. So I'd actually say, I mean, we're already pushing some boundaries uh, in my comfort levels at, at 50. Um, I, I sort of, in the early days, I had this dream that maybe, maybe we could just stay 20 people or something, and that would be the magic number. Um, but sometimes, it, I mean, you'd run into just the sort of the physical realities of trying to serve hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. uh, as customers and, and thinking at the same time, well, I don't want them to have a bad experience either. So, for example, right now we have a customer support team of, I think it's 14 people. And they respond to everyone all over the globe 24-7, uh, vast majority of the time within five minutes. Wow. That, on the other hand, like, it takes 14 people to do that. I'm very proud of that. So you have these competing forces. On the one hand, I'd love to have a smaller company. On the other hand, I'd love to have a customer support team that could be so incredibly responsive to customers, regardless of where they are, regardless of whether they're trying to get a project done on a Saturday night, right? Um, that feels good. So I don't know. My, my natural bias would be stay as small as you can for as long as you can. I don't think most people realize what they have until they lose it. Mm. I love it. Well, tell us just a little bit more about where people can find um, you or Basecamp and the book Rework. Where are you yeah. at? Yep, I'm at um, Basecamp.com. That's the main product site. I think we'll link to the books there. We, we certainly should. But um, if, you, if we don't, um, actually, let me look that up right now. I hate just putting stuff out like that. And just, <laughs> right. Yeah, I think they're right there. Um, we'll be sure to oh, include yeah. links to everything in our show notes at lovebeingboss.com as well. Basecamp.com slash books has the links to both Rework and our newer book, Remote. And for me personally, Twitter is the main outlet that I have. I'm at DHH. Uh, I will warn people in advance that it's a high <laughs> volume stream and you might think, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting on this podcast. I'm going to follow that guy. And then I tweet like 20 times in a day and you go like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so fair warning given. Well, fair warning to you. Um, whenever we include the show notes, we'll probably include some quotables from you linking to your Twitter account. So if you start to see bosses and our listeners tweeting at you, that's what that is. <laughs> Awesome. I love so, it. yeah. Well, thanks again so much for coming on our show and taking the time to talk to us. I am really um, kind of design crushing out over here. I'm so impressed with what you've built and your philosophies. And really, I think that part of what has made Rework so successful, going back to the content marketing side of things, is that I feel like you guys are just using your real voices. I can really feel that you're saying what you mean in it. And, um, and there's just this level of honesty there that is so refreshing and encouraging for creative entrepreneurs like ourselves. So thank you so much for the work that you put out and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I love talking about this stuff and I love talking about it in, in the voice that I have. I think it's the easiest thing to do. Um, I can't do the mask thing. I can't wear different masks in different contexts. So sometimes that hurts me and, uh, and other times <laughs> that uh, helps but um, here we are. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Being Boss. Find show notes for this episode at lovebeingboss.com. Listen to past episodes and subscribe to new episodes on our website, on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. 
Did you like this episode? Head on over to our Facebook group by searching Being Boss in Facebook to join in on the conversation with other bosses or share it with a friend. Do the work, be boss, and we'll see you next week. Sorry, I was pausing for you, Emily, in case you had any. <laughs> I'm I'm just a little mind blown. I know, right that now. was really I good. I absolutely loved that. <laughs>